With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChambaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I, I never knew what would trigger him. I, uh, the, the thing is, I stopped crying. I didn't cry for many, many years because I knew what tears meant. Tears meant more beating. Uh, I, earlier I used to tell my parents when I was, you know, around seven, eight. In my teenage years, I used to leave letters uh, hidden on my mother's uh, dressing table under like a perfume bottle or something, hoping that she'd find it because the letter would say that, and I remember writing this very clearly, that if you don't do something, you will have to find me in the hospital or somewhere else, you know, like I'll be dead if you don't do something. We all know that women deal with violence on a daily basis. Even if we think that it doesn't happen to us, we know it happens to someone. I'm Amiya Nagarajan and this is Hear Me Too, a podcast that explores the extent of violence against women in India, urban and rural, and the second and third level effects it has on our society and economy. I'm working in collaboration with UN Women as part of the 16 Days of Activism movement for 2018. Last week, we talked about what violence is and how it can manifest in many, many ways. There's the obvious hitting someone, but there's also control of their finances and making them afraid to leave their homes. All this violence has great economic and social consequences. So what does the law in India say about it? I spoke to Amba Salelkar, a lawyer with the Equal Centre for Promotion of Social Justice in Chennai. And she told me about all the laws that involve violence against women, from the general ones against murder and arson and robbery and so on, to marriage and divorce acts, to the specific, the Prevention of Domestic Violence Act, Section 509, which is word, gesture or act intended to insult the modesty of a woman, and 498A that deals with abuse. But this framework is still limited. It has a narrow definition of violence, and it doesn't account for the violence that women face in non-intimate partner situations. An intimate partner situation is one where you are in an intimate sexual or marital relationship with somebody, whether you're married to them or not. But a lot of domestic violence doesn't necessarily come only from an intimate partner or their relatives. Domestic violence is the world's biggest source of violence against women. In 2010, fully one half of women who were murdered were killed by intimate partners or family members. For men, that number is 120th. Every second woman and one man in 20. That's the difference. 
India hardly bucks the trend. I mean, national data shows that nearly 30% of women have experienced lifetime sexual and or physical violence from their intimate partners. So I reached out to a women's organization in Delhi, Jaguri. I spoke to survivors, a counselor, an advisor and the director while I was there. And I couldn't begin to process all that I'd heard. Here's Seema, one of the survivors. My name is Seema. I got married in 2011. Everything was fine for one or two months, but after that, the violence started. My husband started hitting me. I didn't tell anybody at home what was happening for two, maybe three months. After the third month, I just couldn't adjust to it and I told my mother. My mother objected and asked him why he was hitting me and things cooled down for a bit. My mother-in-law didn't do anything. My husband just wanted to show off that, look, I control my wife, I keep her under my foot. Till date, that's what he does. He wants to show people that he can control me. I tried to get away from that situation in 2014. I have two daughters. The elder one is six, the younger one is three, but she'll turn four this December. He loved my elder daughter, but when he realized I was having another daughter, he just refused to come see me. I was admitted in hospital for 10 days and he didn't come to see me once. I told him that everyone had come to see me except for him. And he said, should I look after my work or you? I let it go. Before I went back home, the electricity was cut. Everybody at home told him to get it fixed, but it didn't happen. We stayed like that for two months. My husband wouldn't pay the bill and my in-laws would just squabble about who should pay it. I was stuck between this. My mother had to take care of all my expenses. When I was going to give birth, my mother bought all the things we needed for the delivery. She even bought me a pad. I had asked my mother-in-law to get me a pad. It, it was the first time in my life that I had asked for anything. I didn't even ask for anything in the hospital. After 2014, in, in April 2015, I came with my brother because I couldn't take getting beaten so much. I became weak after the delivery. Then I called my brother. First I called my mother and told her, if you don't do anything now, I'll do something. Then I immediately called my brother, told him what's going on, what I had said. That if she didn't come and get me right now, then I'd die. Seema's story is far from unusual. And this kind of violence is definitely not the only kind that women face in their homes. Sunita, she's a counsellor at Jaguri, she told me about all the kinds of cases she's seen come and go in the 22 years that she's worked there. My name is Sunita Thakur and I've been working at Jaguri for 22 years, 15 of them as a counsellor. Most of the cases that come to us are domestic violence, of which dowry harassment is the most common. We also get lots of right-to-choice cases as well, where women want the right to choose their life partners and they face violence in their parental homes. If we look at this from a broad perspective, if any woman wants to take a decision about her life, she should be able to. But people tend to look at right to choice as right to marry at the moment. 
We also have property disputes where a woman's husband wants her share of the property that her parents have left her or a brother doesn't want to give his sister her property or an elderly woman's children want the property that her husband left her. There's violence when the women have property and there's violence when they don't have property. We're getting much higher reports of husband-inflicted sexual violence recently. It's gone up from something like 2 in 10 to 5 or 6 in 10. There's violence when women refuse to accept the decisions their parents make for them. Recently, we're seeing homosexual issues, where a girl wants to live with another woman and the family is opposed. They don't understand. Sometimes the crimes are so severe, they drug their daughters to make them seem mad, and then they have to be treated in hospital. We can't say that violence is restricted to the in-laws and the husband. And we can definitely say that violence in the parental home is a lot more severe. We also had a case once in which a young man assaulted his mother, sexually assaulted his mother. And we know that incest is an issue. There have been some studies on incest, which uh, organizations like Rahi have done phenomenal work on. Uh, but yes, some of these issues are not in the open as yet. We've had a young woman who came here for a few days to be with our team because her grandfather uh, had assaulted her and she was so afraid that the women's group working in that particular state said she needed to be in a protective safe space till they did all the paperwork for the redress and for her safety. So there have been, you know, different kinds of cases all around. That was Sunita Dhar, a different Sunita, an activist and advisor at Jaguri. She had very interesting things to say. Violence is part of our everyday life and interactions. However, as women's groups over years, the women's movement has begun to address violence, both at the level of <clears throat> violence within the family, state violence, violence at the police stations, violence within institutional settings, the largest cases uh, or complaints that come do come for domestic violence mm. and they need not necessarily be spousal or in-laws. In few cases there are also siblings and other members in the family and fortunately for us, <clears throat> the women's movement, we have a very progressive formulation of the law in which um, domestic violence is seen larger than spousal violence. It's with respect to all members in the family. This was an unexpectedly positive statement, I thought, given that Amba had pointed out some of the ways that the legal system in India fails. The law criminalizes violence from the partner or his family, but it ignores the violence a woman could face from her own family, like the woman the counselor Sunita mentioned. And the law's apparent open-mindedness towards live-in relationships is also problematic because it only recognizes those that could be marriages, as in, a couple that's free to marry but chooses not to. Thus ignoring the vast majority of these relationships that are not marriages because perhaps they're already married, perhaps there are other reasons. But even the women that the law covered ran into trouble when they tried to file cases, said Amba. This practicing law in Bombay uh, in criminal trial for about a little less than seven years. And, uh, you know, a lot of the work that I used to do was around uh, 498. Uh, a and, and other um, offenses around uh, domestic violence. Okay. So, you know, one of the things that used to happen in practice, though, was that, uh, though I, I told you that the law has two subsections, what would happen in practice is that 
magistrates or police would insist that you needed to have, um, you know, in inputs on like being asked for dowry. Um, and since this was a prerequisite to filing, uh, the complaint, people would put that in. And, you know, because the police insisted on it and there probably was no evidence to support it. And so then the charge would fail and then it would be like, oh, false complaint. But the fact is that the police were actually sort of coercing you into making a statement about dowry demand. There's no shortage of people working to help women in these situations. Jaguri is one of many organizations who work to create awareness and provide services and counseling to women who are survivors of violence. And still, the problems are so systemic and so deeply rooted that it is never enough. Geeta Nambisan, director of Jaguri, says that while it's important to break the patriarchal norms that make gender violence acceptable in the long run, we need to think differently in the short term. So, you know, for a long time we were struggling with how do we change the mindset of policemen, how do we change the mindset of protection officers and all the frontline workers in that sense, how do we change the mindset. Today we are saying it's not mindset, let's just have simple protocols that help them understand how do they respond to a woman survivor of violence who walks into their space. So, um, when, you know, so how, what are the sensitive ways of um, listening to a woman? How, how, do you, um, how do you help her to speak for herself? How do you give her the space to speak for herself and to make her own choices? How do you respect to her, her choices? Rather than you suggesting, you know, that you do this and you do that, you know. So you don't have to get into the ideology of it, but just... Violence at home is the leading kind of violence that women experience. We need to stand up and speak up about it. Like Sunita said, every woman has the right to take her own decisions and should be free to do so. We're a long way from there and we need to work really hard to make it. My family unit uh, was a nuclear family, a parent, and I uh, have an elder brother. He is older to me by about four years. And uh, my father was in the government service. My mother was a school teacher. So we were latchkey children. And uh, we spent a lot of time by ourselves. My earliest memory of being attacked by my brother uh, during a game uh, was when I was four years old. And I remember it vividly because he had choked me. And he... You know, I was four, he was eight, he was obviously a bigger child. And he had choked me and held on to my neck. And the key turned in the door and my mother came back from work at exactly that time and she saw it. Uh, my memory goes blank after that. It was very normal for me to be attacked by my brother, uh, whether it was a game whether it was him needing color pencils. The point is that at any point, if there was any resistance from my side, whether it was saying no, or whether it was talking back, or cracking a joke about him, uh, he couldn't take it. And he retaliated with his fist. So my first memory is at age four. My last memory is, uh, and it's not memory, like the last time he attacked me was I was 18. So from four to the four to eighteen, uh, 
it was a constant, except for a few years when he didn't live in the same house. He went to another city to study and he lived with my grandparents there. So what initially started off as, you know, uh, just physically overpowering me or smacking me about, uh, as we grew older, what happened is that our fights had a routine and a pattern. Uh, if we were fighting about the remote or about controlling the volume, changing the channel, choosing a cartoon, it escalated very, very quickly and uh, it would become uh, sort of a fight to the death. You know, uh, I don't mean to, I do, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that because he really threw all his energy and strength in not just overpowering me, but humiliating me. That beating me to the point that I cry and then beating me more because I was crying because he considered it a, a, an incredible weakness. And it infuriated him that as a, as a girl, I was resorting to crying. He was physically very strong. This is something he took great pride in as we grew up, especially in our teenage years. Uh, he was manipulative. Uh, if he found out that I had failed the test, uh, he would blackmail me into having his way, whether it was television, whether it was pocket money, whether it was anything, you know. Uh, and if I resisted, then the beating would happen. So these, the several uh, occasions and incidents uh, that that took place over the years, um, there was some sexual abuse as well uh, when we hit our teen years, um, which is. Uh, particularly difficult to talk about, but it happened in, 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 on two occasions and did not happen again. The other thing is I stopped complaining or saying anything because the next day the beating would be worse. Now, when I say being beaten, uh, he was very careful to mostly punch me in the stomach because, uh, bruising around that area is hard to, come by. You know, it's, uh, you, you bruise easily on your face, your arms, your neck, uh, your back. Now your stomach, uh, your your buttocks, uh, you know, depending on the kind of skin you have, you don't bruise all that easy. And I discovered this because, you know, it, 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 it really felt like there was no proof. There was no way for me to go and tell them that this had happened. Uh, he would twist my arm so far behind my back that it would hurt for days and I couldn't move them properly. Um, he was into fitness and I, when puberty happened, I spread in all directions. Uh, my, my weight, my girth, uh, was a source of great entertainment for him. And if I, if I, if I retaliated verbally, then it became a source of then it, then I became a punching bag for him. Uh, he took great pleasure in making me feel ashamed about being fat. And also that since you're fat, I have to hammer, uh, this, you know, I, I have to make you understand that you can't be fat. And so the way to do it is by, uh, you know, physically harming you and abusing you so that you realize that the only way to escape this is to not be fat and do something about it. I knew perfectly well around the time I was 12 that I needed to leave the house because uh, I just had to. I just waited 
from the age of 12 to 18, I just waited six years to be an adult and to be able to uh, leave my hometown and go to a different city to study. And that was my goal. For six years, that was my singular goal that I had to leave home because, uh, you know, a lot of people who say, oh, I didn't say anything because I didn't think I'd be believed. Uh, I was believed and yet nothing was done. And that indifference hurt much more. I would rather have not been believed, you know, uh, than to have been believed uh, and yet, you know, uh, not attended to in that regard. Emotionally, um, it destroyed my childhood. And there is really no other way uh, to put it because the people who were my family and my siblings and the people I'm supposed to be most loved by um, turned to be the people who invariably harmed me the most. So I, I never knew what would trigger him. I, uh, the, the thing is, I stopped crying. I didn't cry for many, many years because I knew what tears meant. Tears meant more beating. Uh, I, earlier I used to tell my parents when I was, you know, around seven, eight. In my teenage years, I used to leave letters, uh, hidden on my mother's, uh, dressing table under like a perfume bottle or something, hoping that she'd find it because the letter would say that and I remember writing this very clearly that if you don't do something, you will have to find me in the hospital or somewhere else, you know, like I'll be dead if you don't do something. The beatings uh, were not as frequent as we grew older, uh, but they were still happening. Um, earlier, when I was in my teen years, uh, I, I would, there were days when it was so regular that I would actually look at the look at my watch and be like, oh, you know, it's already noon and I haven't been hit. Or, oh, it's 4 o'clock and today I haven't been hit. You know, it was so normal for me. Uh, the other thing is, the other kinds of violence that uh, he, you know, uh, inflicted upon me uh, was stuff like, uh, he, you know, while we were fighting and while we were shoving each other and pushing each other, He'd throw me into the balcony and shut the door from inside. And this is somewhere in Calcutta during the holidays. And it, it's broiling. And he'd leave me like that for two, three hours till... And, and I would have to stand there and there would be people from the other side of the building, you know, in their balconies or in their bedrooms. And they'd wave at me and I'd wave back. But at no point could I actually tell them what had happened is that I'd been left outside to, to bake and bake. And by the time the door would be open, I, I, I would, I'd be very close to passing out. Next week, we look at the violence women face at work. I'm Amea, and this is Yummy Too from Express Audio and UN Women India. If you like the show, please do subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Express Podcasts 
or if you prefer email you can write to us at podcast@indianexpress.com at thanks for listening